If you continue to live your life as you're living it right now, what will be the outcome? Down the road, will you be happy, satisfied, successful, content? Will life be blessed? If you continue to study or work the way you do now, what is that going to lead to one day? What about the way that you work out or the way that you eat or drink? Will you physically be where you want to be years from now? What about financially? If you continue on, will you be wealthy one day or impoverished? What about relationally? Will your relationships grow healthier or will they deteriorate? What about spiritually? If you continue living as you're living now, will you grow? Will you grow closer to God? Will you know God's word better? Will your faith reap a harvest? Or will the, the cares and the riches and pleasures of this life choke out your faith and your fruit? I want us to all ask this question today. Where are we headed? What is our trajectory? What will life be like five years from now? Or 50 years from now? Or even five million years from now? What is life going to be like? good for us to consider the, the outcome of our actions, the outcome of our lives. What are the long-term consequences? What are the cause and effects of the way we are living now? God's word often challenges us to look to the future to see where life is headed. And if we can't see or we can't tell ourselves, he often gives us little previews himself. There's not many places where this is more starkly seen than in Deuteronomy 28 which I'll invite you to open up to now. Deuteronomy 28. We've already seen Moses lay out the, the really black and white choices that Israel had set before them. He said earlier, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Obey well, you get the blessing. But disobey, you get the curse. But what would it actually mean to be blessed by God? or to be under God's curse. What would those outcomes entail? That's what Deuteronomy 28 is going to tell us, describing blessings and curses in, in really actually graphic detail. And I think it likely that as we read this, God's blessing will be far greater than we would guess. And at the same time, God's curse may be far worse than we imagine. Now, certain things may seem rather shocking to us today, difficult to swallow, but in Israel's ancient context, whenever a, a treaty or a covenant was formed, which is what was happening in Deuteronomy, to have blessings and curses laid out at this point was pretty standard. We may wish that every part of the Bible made us feel happy or feel good about ourselves. But that's simply not the case, is it? That wouldn't be realistic. 
want to be truthful, I want to be helpful. As Pastor Paul Carter says, not every chapter in the Bible is intended to lighten our steps. Some of them are meant to put weight in our souls. So it is with Deuteronomy 28. It's also a very long chapter, so I can do my best to move quickly. The first 14 verses talk about blessings. And then verse 15, all the way to the end, talk about curses. And each section begins with the preconditions, or what you might say leads to these outcomes. All right, so look at the very beginning. It says this in verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then skip down to verse 15 where the next section starts. It says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the obedience or disobedience today. Really, that's what most of the rest of Deuteronomy has been talking about, right? Most of our time today is going to be spent talking about the outcomes of these lifestyles. But I thought it'd be good to give you just a quick summary of what obedience or disobedience look like according to, to Deuteronomy. Otherwise, it's kind of like telling new drivers to follow the rules of the road or else without telling them or teaching them the actual rules that they have to follow. And what, how, what good would that do, right? Knowing the effects but not the causes. So first, really quickly, obeying God includes listening, doing, and worshiping. All right? Listening, doing, and worshiping. All of which actually translate to the new covenant and to us today. Even though we're not under the Jewish law now, obedience still looks the same. Listening, doing, worshiping. So it starts with listening. Verse 1 says that they had to faithfully obey the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord. But then we have to take what God has spoken and do it, right? Follow through. As it says, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. Verse 9 is going to say, it's talking about keeping God's commands and walking in his ways. Same thing. James 1.25 tells us, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But obedience to God isn't just doing things for the sake of doing things. It's deeper than that. And see, the kind of obedience that pleases God is what is born out of a heart of love for him. Hence, True obedience involving worship. We're going to see here that disobedience is equated with idolatry. And verse 58, way down in the chapter, it describes the goal of obedience as fear and worship. It says there, verse 58, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in the book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. God. That's what obedience looks like. 
hearing God, doing what he says, out of love and fear and reverence for him. On the other hand, we can also see disobedience described in this chapter. And disobedience includes not listening, not doing, and idolizing. Right? Not listening, not doing, and instead of worshiping God, worshiping false gods. Again, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. You see the, the voice of the Lord again there, and be careful to do all his commandments. Repeatedly, this chapter warns about curses coming if Israel failed to worship God, but instead went after idols. Verse 14 makes this very clear. It says, And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Verse 47 also makes this clear. It says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. So these uh, talk about serving is often a synonym for worship. Interestingly, as we'll see, idolatry ends up not just being a crime, but a curse itself. It's part of the curses. But look at verse 20. Disobedience is not just innocent mistakes or minor errors. God takes disobedience as a personal offense against him. Verse 20 says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Now keep this in mind when you wrestle with the severity of some of these penalties. Sin is far worse than we imagine. As all sin involves idolatry. At some root level, it's us placing ourselves or other things in God's place and forsaking Him. So as we read how God either blesses or curses, obedience or disobedience. Ask yourself, am I listening to God attentively, regularly? And am I doing what God says diligently, faithfully? And am I obeying in order to worship Him lovingly, passionately, fearfully? There really are only two main points that come out of this long chapter. Okay, so I will expand on them so I don't just say obey good, disobey bad. <laughs> All right, here's the first one God blesses obedience extravagantly with wonderful things. God blesses obedience to him extravagantly with wonderful things. I love how verse 2 puts it says, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. You won't be able to escape being blessed. I was playing a, a simple game of tag with a couple of my boys this week, and they would run away from me, but of course, they can't outrun me yet. But as I would catch up to them and tag them, 
It was interesting. They weren't sad. They were, they were giddy with excitement that I was catching them. They weren't sad to be caught. They're, they're squealing with delight. And when we faithfully obey God, sometimes his blessings will overtake us, catching us by surprise. And let me tell you, we won't be disappointed to be caught. I know that most of us could describe times like this in our lives when we were overwhelmed by God's blessings to us. Look what Israel was promised to enjoy if they obeyed. Verse 3. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. They'd be blessed wherever they went, whatever they were. Their fertility would be blessed. Their farming would be blessed. Their food would be blessed. Their health, their workplaces, their security, all blessed. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way, flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And why would God do this? Why bless people like this? Well, several reasons. First, because it's in God's benevolent nature to bless. It's who he is. He is the, the God from whom all blessings flow. He overflows with life. And he loves his creation. And humans are the, the pinnacle of that creation. So when we return love to him, he doesn't just shrug and go, that's nice. <laughs> no, just like the, the negative side of disobedience, God takes our love personally. He's a personal God. He takes it personally. And therefore, God then blesses obedience extravagantly with these wonderful things by personally bestowing his favor from verse 7 on, every verse highlights God's role in all this. He is the subject of every sentence. Like the Lord will cause your enemies to rise, who rise against you to be defeated. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you. The Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you. Verse 9, he will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand, or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. 
Now, we are not talking about salvation here. Okay? We're talking about rewards. But even the rewards are graces from God. As Chris Wright says, God's blessing on God's people is already there in the fact that they are God's people at all. Blessing is the prior reality of God's grace. Obedience, therefore, like faith, is the means of appropriating God's grace and blessing, not the means of deserving it. That's really key to understand here. But did you see just how... (laughs) abundant these blessings would be. How amazing they are. It's really good. Verse 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Verse 12 says, The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens. So that's vivid imagery there, right? As if God has these enormous storehouses, these treasuries in heaven. And as the, the message paraphrases, He will throw open the doors of His sky vaults. <laughs> And it says, obey, there'd be nowhere to go but up. That doesn't mean they were down, though. It says, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. You shall only go up and not down. God personally loves his people. He loves us more than we could possibly imagine. But in case you think that makes or makes you think that we are the center of God's world. Think again. The other reason we see here that God blesses his people for our obedience is all about him. It's to establish us for himself. To establish him for himself. So uh, God blesses obedience extravagantly, wonderfully, personally to establish us for himself. Look at verse 9 again says, and the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. Now, being made holy by God is likely the greatest blessing he can bestow on us. And the reason he does this is to to set us apart as his people, it says, to or for himself. We're for him. So, God's glory not our own, is the reason that God blesses us. You can see more of that in verse 10. It says, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. the, The Israelites were special, not because they would obey so well, but because God had called them his own. That phrase, called by the name of the Lord, carries the idea of branding. So you know that when an owner of something writes their name on something or brands it if you owned livestock or something? Maybe like in Toy Story, when Woody has Andy or Bonnie written on his boot. We have God's name written on our hearts. Just let that sink in. We belong to him. I wonder if the people around us can tell that we are called by the name of the Lord. Is there anything different about us? Is there any way, are we clearly set apart as holy? Or are we doing our best to just blend into the crowd? 
Now, some churches or preachers today try to use passages like this to promise people earthly prosperity now if they just do all the right things. As if there's a, a heavenly slot machine and we just push all the right buttons. But that dismisses God's sovereignty from the picture. And it ignores that even faithful people will suffer on earth. Sometimes God withholds blessings for now in order to give us more later or in order to draw us closer to himself or in order to grow us more like him. He can bless us deeply, even in the midst of some of the opposite of these things, even in infertility, in sickness, in failure, in poverty, insecurity, he can still bless us. This also ignores the fact that we are under a different covenant now. Our blessings are no longer tied to the land of Canaan. They're tied to the kingdom of heaven. Okay, we are not promised any physical blessings for now. However, what we have already received spiritually, as well as what we will receive one day, will blow those things out of the water. In a way, these verses give us a, a pale reflection of heaven. Revelation 22 describes as a place where nothing accursed will be their only blessing. And this sounds pretty wonderful in itself, doesn't it? How much greater will that day be? But the outcome will not be rosy for everyone. There's a, a huge but in verse 15. It says, but... If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So while being overtaken earlier would have been exhilarating, this would be a nightmare. This is like fleeing for your life, but you can't escape. The rest of this chapter is, is like a, a tragic mirror image of the first part. And the simple point is this. God curses disobedience extensively with horrific things. God curses disobedience to him extensively. What would, we, what would these curses look like? We may be sorry we asked. Here goes. Verse 16. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Curses everywhere. In the city, in the farm, in the kitchen, in the bedroom. Over the verses that follow, we'll see curses of sickness, drought, famine, financial ruin, slavery, military invasion, siege and defeat, land loss, and the distress of exile. Now, Moses didn't just have a morbid imagination. 
These things routinely took place in the ancient world, and many still do. I'm going to read a much longer chunk of verses, and then we'll make a few comments. But I think the, the point that God curses disobedience extensively is going to come out loud and clear here. Okay, starting verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey, donkeys shall be seized before your face, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall only be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you shall become a horror, a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you astray. Or away. You shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. The sojourner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Stop there for now. As you can see, these curses are a stark reversal of the earlier blessings. Verse 20 could probably be a summary of what follows. If you just look there, I'm not going to read it again, but it describes, as one scholar explains, the source of Israel's doom, which is the Lord. 
the agents of doom, curses, confusion, and frustration, the scope of the doom in all you undertake, the goal of the doom, destruction, and the reasons for the doom, your evil and forsaking God. It's terrifying. Confusion and frustration in everything they did until they're destroyed. But it gets worse. It says that pestilence or plagues are going to cling to them. You might imagine like ticks or fleas. Verse 22 is pure misery. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, fiery heat, with drought and blight and mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Like they'll hunt you down like predators hunt prey. When drought hits, it says the sky would be like a ceiling of bronze. No moisture dropping. The ground would become hard like iron. Rain would be replaced with dust storms. Verse 25 and 26 describe a, a gory post-battle scene with bodies left out like carrion. A huge indignity. Moses then lists madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. They go insane. Mentally blind. Then verse 30 to 33 gives them futility curses, saying that no matter what they do, they fail at it. Marriages, homes, agriculture, livestock, children, all would be futile in the end. How so? Because ultimately, these curses would culminate in losing the promised land. With a few survivors being dragged off to exile. Verse 33 said, a nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you're driven mad by the sights your eyes see. Look down to verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Verse 41. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The most ominous part about this chapter is that eventually, this all happened. Over the following centuries, Israel experienced all these curses at different times. And when God's long-suffering patience finally wore out, they were exiled. Some into Assyria, some into Babylon. And so... Instead of being set high above all nations, like I said in verse 1, they became the, the horror, the proverb, the byword that verse 37 talks about among the nations. Other people would look at them and laugh, ridiculing, taunting. Like they would say, look at them for an example of how not to be. Let's keep reading. Verse 45. 
All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Do you see the tragic irony there? Right? Verse 47 gives us this picture of what God wanted for them. He wanted them to serve him and worship him, but not in some heavy-handed way. He wanted them to do so with joyfulness and gladness of heart. And And it made sense to do so because it says he would give them the abundance of all things. Like, it should have been easy to follow God in their circumstances. But since they refused to serve God, even then, they would serve someone else. In terrible conditions. It says, you'll serve your enemies in hunger and thirst and nakedness, lacking everything. God would provide alternative masters for them. Whom they would find insanely inferior to God. Verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who, who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds, or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. Now, an eagle swooping down might not seem like such a terrifying picture. It is if you're a rabbit or a mouse. And that's what we should picture here. Right? This, this deadly apex predator swooping down with talons bared in an instant. That's scary. Moses then describes the brutal siege that would lead to their exile. In verse 52, it says, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls, notice, in which you trusted, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Their trust was badly misplaced. Right? And they put it in human-made security, not in God. Notice, God had given them their towns. They built the walls, and then they trusted the walls. Might make you consider what you are relying on for your future security. Right, we trust all kinds of things, RSPs and pensions, insurance policies, possessions, cash, all man-made things built on top of blessings that have been given us by God. So what are you trusting? The foundation or the walls? The desolation, the sieges like this, 
it would cause is, is difficult to even read out loud. In verse 53. After this is, remember, all, after all the herds and grain and everything else is gone. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother and the wife he embraces and to the last of his children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you whom who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she's so delicate and tender will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. The Jews endured sieges like this more than once in their history. And both the Bible and other historical sources record stories eerily similar to this curse. It's extreme dehumanization. Willing to resort to cannibalism. It's also extreme degradation of character. You see, Moses makes a point to say that the most tender and refined people would fall this far. What we really have here is selfishness that has become completely unrestrained. Selfishness unrestrained. Even now, we believe that God is restraining the evil that resides in human hearts. When he lets go, and while it's easy for us to, to judge such horrors from the outside, truth be told, we have no idea how we would respond to such hopelessness. Of course, I can't imagine carrying out such unspeakable ha acts. But I can imagine that given the right circumstances, there's hardly a crime I wouldn't commit. push someone hard enough, far enough, apply enough pressure, people crack. To quote a shining example of refined character, the Joker from Batman, all right? It's people's morals, their code, it's a bad joke, dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be, when the chips are down, civilized people, they'll eat each other. The truth in that is that human depravity knows hardly any bounds. Keep going. Verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, 
Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. And notice there, they would be struck with the same diseases, the same plagues that afflicted Egypt. This is God playing fair. He's being just. Right? He'll treat Israel the same as everyone else. There's no double standard. God had used Israel to judge other nations, but if Israel followed in their paths, they would follow them in judgment too. But in verse 58, God is described in a pretty powerful way. Right? It says, if you don't do this, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. And we may think, well, these curses should definitely have taken care of fearing God. <laughs> but it's not the curses that should have led to fearing God. It's who he is. And it's obedience to him. God was glorious and awesome and to be feared long before it came to this. The other thing to see here is that this hints at why these curses were so severe. The greater the person, the greater the offense, and the greater the consequences. We cannot truly forsake a glorious and awesome God, the ruler of the universe, and shrug it off. Verse 62. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So there's a, a total reversal of the Abrahamic covenant. At least for now. Right? This also hints that there will be a remnant left alive, left alive, left few in number through whom God would keep his promise one day. But for the time being, it would appear as though God had totally rejected them. Verse 63, And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Now that's really difficult. It's hard enough to accept that God will cause all these things. But to say that he will delight in them seems like too much. Well, most scholars explain that this saying is rhetorical. It's not literal. But I especially like what Paul Carter says, who wrote a whole blog on this one verse. Okay? He says this, This is one of those chapters from which we would rather look away. We would rather imagine a God who was only mercy. We would rather imagine a God who was slightly less antagonistic towards human rebellion and sin. However, the Bible does not give us such a God. The Bible describes a God who is three times holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is who he is, and he is not subject to our judgment or approval. He is glorified in the display of his mercy 
and he is glorified in the display of his judgment. When I read this, I am reminded forcefully that God delights in who he is, and he is holy, holy, holy. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is patient. God is loving. And God is just. He will by no means clear the guilty. That is who God is. One commentary puts it this way, he displays his glory in the judgment and destruction of the wicked no less than in blessing and prospering the righteous. Now that truth isn't easy to accept, but we will all accept it one day when we see the whole picture. And if you think God has changed since this was written, just read Revelation 19 and 20 and come back to me. Carter concludes, I am freshly rebuked for my idolatry. I am reminded that I would lie to myself about the character and nature of God. I am reminded that I would dare to sit in judgment over the Lord. I repent. I am not God. I am not the judge. Okay, let's finish this off. Verse 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. That's a good picture. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were, it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. That's some pretty terrible anxiety and dread. Right? It's like PTSD. And finally, and the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt a journey that I promise that you should never make again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. In essence, the Exodus, their salvation history, would be reversed. Instead of being rescued from foreigners, they'd be invaded by foreigners. Instead of becoming a nation, their nation would dissolve. Instead of being brought into the promised land, they'd be shipped off far away. And it, but it would be proof even worse than slavery in Egypt. Now they'd only wish they were slaves. Right? No one would even want them even as that. It says, you're going to try to sell yourself, no one's going to buy you. Their, their value as people, gone. They couldn't even be bought like property. And if you think about it, their value as people was gone because God was gone. Well, God is never really gone, but he can remove his active care, his hand of blessing. 
See, God curses disobedience extensively with horrific things by personally removing his favor. Don't know if you noticed this as we read through chapter 28, but as Moses lists this litany of disasters, he emphasizes how hopeless Israel would be by saying over and over again that there would be no relief, no help on the way. Okay, just as a sampling, look with me. Verse 26 and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. There be no Savior, even in death. Verse 27, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors and scabs of itch, of which you cannot be healed. There be no healer. Verse 29 says, you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually. There shall be no one to help you. There be no helper. Verse 31, your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. There will be no helper and no justice. Verse 32 says, you shall be helpless. Verse 65 says, among these nations you shall find no respite. There shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. There's no break from calamity, no rest. Verse 67, there's no peace. And even in verse 68, it says, you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies. There will be no buyer. There would be no Lord, no master. Why wouldn't there be any of this? Because God was removing his active presence from among them. He was their savior and their healer and their helper and their vindicator and their rest and their peace and their Lord. He was their life. But if he withdrew, there'd be none of that. We wonder, well, since this happened, does this mean that God broke his promise to them? Not at all. Daniel Block explains that neither the fall of Israel nor the fall of Judah meant that Yahweh had canceled or broken off his covenant. On the contrary, these events confirmed that the covenant was still in force. The blessings were suspended and replaced with the curse, exactly as proclaimed by Moses. This is later confirmed by the prophet Daniel, who claimed that really there was only one guilty party. Said in Daniel 9, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he's done. And we have not obeyed his voice. Essentially, when people forsake God... God leaves them to themselves. See, God curses disobedience extensively, horrifically, by personally removing his favor in order to give us over to our evil. Now remember that idolatry was at the heart of what got them into this mess. They wanted to, to serve and worship other gods. So what does God do? He lets them have what they wanted what they pursued. Said in verse 36, you shall be brought into this nation that you, neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Verse 64 says again, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. 
It's totally a Romans 1 thing. Right? Where it says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Twice more in Romans 1, it says that God gave us up to our evil. He gave us up, and the disaster just keeps escalating. We have got to be really careful about what we are pursuing in life, whether that be riches, or lovers, or success, or comfort, or individualistic dreams, because you may just get what you want, and it won't prove to be what you want. In cursing disobedience, God removes his favor. He gives us over to our depravity. Friends, what, what we have here is basically a picture of hell. Hell is the ultimate, the eternal expression of being under God's curse. So let these warnings to Israel warn you of that even greater, more terrible danger. Now much of this chapter does not apply to Christians as it is terms of the Old Covenant. We may wonder why we don't see blessings or curses like this happening today. But the fact of the matter is, God already kept his word on this. It was already fulfilled. It's in the history books. So we can trust that the rest of his promises are also going to be fulfilled. We may also think, you know, life isn't this black and white with such polarized choices. But then Jesus comes along and says stuff like, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Destruction or life. Sounds pretty black and white. There are only two ultimate outcomes in life. Stunning on either side. It's like, don't you, don't you want to live life under God's richest blessing? That's held out to us first. And if that doesn't work, don't you want to escape hell? If so, you've got to look to the only one who perfectly obeyed God for his whole life and yet died as a cursed man on the cross 
in order to make you holy and righteous. Read Deuteronomy 28 and realize that Jesus came to save us from a fate like this. Right? Even more, Jesus became this curse to save us from it. Jesus was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Right? He became a, a byword for us as people passed by mocking him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It's the famous hymn slash Christmas carol sings. He comes to make his blessings flow. Where? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, even when the curse is found in you and in me, even today, right here, right now, trust in Him. Fear Him. Serve Him with joy and gladness. You won't be sorry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, move in us now to show us your love and your compassion on the evil that we have done by showing us Christ. Help us rejoice in that. Help us trust your sovereignty no matter what is going on in our lives and help us to praise you in Jesus name Amen